Life as sport. It's an approach to performance and everyday situations that Dr. Jonathan Fader strongly believes in based on his experience working with top athletes. Dr. Jonathan Fader is a licensed performance psychologist who served two seasons as the director of mental conditioning for the New York Football Giants and also served as the team psychologist for the New York Mets for nine seasons. In this episode, we'll unpack some of the skills Dr. Fader teaches professional athletes and find out more about how he is influenced by his experience working with high performers in various fields. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and you're listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. Dr. Jonathan Fader, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me here, Patty. I'm, I'm so psyched to be here and to talk about my work, but also the work that we've done together in firefighting and other settings. So I'm really excited to have you here today, and I'm really confident having this conversation with you because of a really personal reason, and it's something that I don't often share, so of course I'm going to share it as we're sitting here recording. I'm excited to hear about it. So my first job ever, I was 16 years old, and I worked for a minor league baseball team. And the reason why I got my job working for a minor league baseball team is because I started singing at the games when I was 11 years old. Wow. We should have opened this episode with like, you know, a Star Spangled Banner. See, I knew you were going to say that, and I want to make a pact with you right now. Okay. We won't make you sing. I promise not to sing if you promise not to rap. Uh, Well, I don't know if we want either of those things to happen. Uh, You know, we could put it together. We could do like a a freestyle rap version of Star Spangled Banner. (laughs) So we'll stay away from freestyle rapping. We'll stay away from singing. But I, I'm interested to talk to you today because obviously you are a sports psychologist and you work with the Giants and the Mets. So when you speak about walking onto a field with thousands of people staring at you with expectations and judgment and having to perform, I, I understand the you've perspective. You've been there. Yeah, you've been there. Yes. Where, so how many people were at these minor league games that you were singing at? If they're sold out, you know, it was like 3,000 people. Yeah. And at 11 years old, even 16, 17 years old, when I started working there, you know, one second I would be – I was actually selling tickets there. And one second I'd be wow. selling tickets and the next thing, if somebody didn't show up or they were running late, I'd be on the field singing. Yeah. Little time to prepare, just went out there and I had no choice. Yeah. Sink or swim. Yeah, sink or swim. <laughs> yeah, and you – so you know what it feels like and, and what, you know, uh, performers feel like, whether they're on the battlefield, whether they're uh, in a firefighting setting or whether they're elite athletes. You know that that sense of pressure, that sense of – how moments feel when you're being observed by many, many people and something's on the line. And so what I appreciate about your work is you have shared it with others and you have um, named your book, Life is Sport, What Top Athletes Can Teach You About How to Win in Life. Um, before we get into that and unpack all of that, did you have a background in sport growing up before you entered into this field? No, I mean, I, was, I guess, you know, my background in sports is probably being like the second to last guy who's chosen for dodgeball on the, you know, in public school. Um, you know, I grew up playing sports and, you know, certainly played basketball like many kids in my neighborhood. But no, not really. I mean, I wasn't an athlete to speak of, certainly not anywhere near the caliber of the athletes I've worked with by a long mm-hmm. shot. My my background, I went to a performing arts high school here in, in New York City, LaGuardia High School for the Performing Arts. And so many of the people I grew up with were interested in performing and I had an opportunity to 
to perform and, and grow with them and, and learn about what it felt like to be on stage. Um, and, you know, when I say stage, I mean, certainly there are singers, dancers, uh, you know, the people, Adrian Grenier, Sarah Paulson, uh, you know, even in the earlier years, people like Al Pacino went to that school. Um, but it really got me in touch with what it means to um, be your best. And I was always fascinated by that, this idea of different levels of self. What are the different strata, the different levels that you can reach in your developing of talent? And who and how do people find their best self? How do they pull from this talent or their training and come up with an ability to really rise to the occasion, whether that's on a performing arts stage or a athletic field or in a first responding setting? Who is, who, who is able to manifest their talent when it really counts? So do you think your performing arts background helped you become an asset in this field of high-performing athletes? You know, I think so, Patty. I mean, I think that what it, what it allowed me to do really is being, being a performing artist and, and having that experience allowed me to understand that, you know, we – I as a human, I'm an instrument – you know, the things that I can do. And, and as a sports and performance psychologist, one of my talents or one, or one of my abilities that I've developed is the ability to understand at a high level what people experience when they're performing. And so I think it's it allowed me to be able to um, adjust myself to certain situations to understand what the culture of a particular environment is. Uh, so, you know, when I'm working in a fire department setting or when I'm working with actors or when I'm working with football players, you have to very quickly understand what the performance field is like, um, what the situation is like, what are the obstacles, the performance obstacles they face, what is the love of the game, what, why are they doing it? Understand that really quickly. And I think my ability to train as performing artist gave me some talents at that, allowed me to understand the language. You know, it's funny. And in, in, in there's all different language that's used in, in baseball and football it's almost like a like a second language. And so learning those different ways of communicating allowed me to really bond with different groups in ways that I don't know if I had that performing arts background if I'd been able to do that. Yeah, you sort of read the room and the body language. So Totally. So yeah. then actually that leads me to my next question, which is how were you received in this field of sport and not having an athletic background? Yeah, you know, what's what's so fascinating is that you know, I often say, you know, people say, well, what, what do you do again? And, you know, I say, well, I mean, I'm trained as a psychologist. I'm really trained as a clinical and a performance psychologist. And that's my that's my professional background. But I actually think of myself as an anthropologist. My job is really to, as I said, go in and find a connection with people. So, you know, I, it's, I tell the story sometimes. People say, oh, how'd you become a sports psychologist? And the 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 real way I became a sports psychologist is not because I went to some fancy school. I mean, I went to an excellent graduate program and got great training, got specialty in it. But really, it's because I speak fluent Spanish. And so early in my career, I remember being in the minor leagues. You know, same about the same time, probably you were singing your heart out, <laughs> and actually on the field, I was going around the minor leagues of baseball, and I was I was noticing that you know I was introducing myself as a psychologist in Spanish. You say psicólogo. And so I was telling people, I'm a psicologo and this and that. And just joking around with, you know, players who are from Dominican Republic, from Venezuela. And then I was amazed because they quickly picked up this term psicologo. It's like a, you know, complicated term. You don't say that. There's not a lot of psychologists running around in these communities where a lot of these players came from in Dominican Republic. So it was crazy. They were saying psicologo. And then I paid closer attention. They were actually saying psicoloco. 
So they were just teasing me. They came up with this nickname for me. And, it, you know, if you think about what that means, it's, you know, like a joke about being loco, about being crazy. So my job early on, to answer your question, was to overcome that stigma. When people think like mental training, mental coaching, they often think of therapy. They often think of, you know, fixing something that's wrong. And that's not what we do as a mental coach. That's not what we do in preparing people to be at their best. It's much more the opposite. It's much more, as Harvey Dorfman, one of the originators of, of baseball psychology would say, we're a stretch, not a shrink. And we're there to help people prepare. And so I think regarding the idea of what helped me or what allowed me to to get over whatever negative reception was there was like noting that from the beginning and positioning myself in a way to help people realize, no, this is just about getting better. Certainly I help people along the way who are mm -hmm. struggling um, with whatever things in life. But really it was about connecting to people um, and – not so much teaching them the techniques of sport and performance psychology, but more understanding who they were as people first, understanding their what they wanted, and then and then teaching them the skills once we had formed a relationship. Did you also have to incorporate some of the skills yourself in those moments when you were being vulnerable or, you know, struggling to overcome some obstacle? No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. I mean, you know, I mean that's really why I wrote this book, Life of Sport. It's that you know, I realized through my career, you know, I was I was really lucky when I was with the New York Mets, you know, after being in the minor leagues for six years, we went to the World Series when I was in the big leagues. And I had a great, amazing time. But what I realized is that so many of the people I were talking to, including myself, had moments where they just lost enjoyment for what they were doing. Mm -hmm. You know, they got so tied up in in, in outcome, so tied up in, in winning or losing. And now in my work in other fields, uh, I see that happening too. And, and one, it makes sense, right? Like if your job is to save people's lives, you're going to get really wrapped up in that. If your job is to improve your P&L, if your job is to win baseball games, you're going to get really caught up in that. But almost to the point where people lose the love or the enjoyment of what they're doing. And so, you know, to, to your question about, yeah, I definitely use all the skills of sports psychology and what I do. And look, I get nervous. I'm not nervous with you today because I've known you a long time. I know your work you've done in firefighting and, you know, I'm comfortable. But, you know, a lot of times if you go up, even as a speaker, because I do a lot of public speaking, you feel your heart rate running. Right. You feel that lump in your throat. You, you know, we're humans. And so all the techniques that we teach firefighters, that we teach people in um, performing arts, in, in football and baseball and sports and athletic environments, my belief is and my experience has been – they help everyone. We all are humans. We all have the same heart, the same brain, and we all experience stress. And no matter the context, certain techniques that you train on can help you to just calm down and be in the moment. You touched upon outcomes, and I kind of want to flush that out a bit. Can you break down what the difference between being outcome-driven and then focusing on the process looks like? Absolutely. Um, so – what what happens often in sports and in finance is, let's take for example in, in financial situations. Oftentimes, I work a lot now in hedge fund communities and, and finance communities and in, in, in coaching those men and women up. And sometimes people make a lot of money on a certain choice and they celebrate, but they don't realize actually that it was luck. They just made the wrong choice and it worked out. Sometimes the opposite is true. You make the right choice given the data and you have a bad outcome. You don't have the results you want. 
And what a lot of people do is they don't examine those two relationships. They don't look at how their choice affects the outcome. If they do well, they celebrate with no evaluation of whether they actually made the right choice to lead to that outcome. Or if they do poorly, they feel bad even though they made the right choice. And so the goal is if you made the wrong choice to really look at it and go over your process again. So if you're, for example, a baseball pitcher mm -hmm. and you choose a certain pitch, you choose, you know, it's the ninth inning, it's, you know, you're closing the game and you, you decide to throw an inside fastball and you strike the guy out. But really, when you look back at his stats, that was the wrong thing to do at that point. It was the wrong pitch to choose. People shouldn't be celebrating. They should say, you know what, like that was the wrong thing to do. We got lucky that time. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you throw a slider and that was the right thing to throw in that situation and he just golfs it out the park, he gets lucky, you should pat yourself on the back for making the right choice. Um, so, you know, dividing the process from the outcome is critical in success in any domain and being realistic about it. I often sometimes the way I put it to people is there's two ways to approach your process when you review it. You can either be Captain Kirk or you can be Mr. Spock. Most people are Captain Kirk. They just get really excited about what happens and, oh, we won. You really want to be Mr. Spock. You want to look back with stoicism and logic on what happened and really determine, hey, did I make the right choice there? Irrespective of how it turned out, whether it's baseball or firefighting scenario or, or business. Mm -hmm. I keep going back to your background in sport, but obviously, as you've mentioned, you work with other high performers in a variety of different industries. Who is the most mentally tough person you've worked with? Wow. And if you don't want to say a name, <laughs> what made them mentally tough? I mean, there's so many people that I've known along the way that I find to be extremely mentally tough. Um, you know, my work with the Mets and my work with the Giants. I mean, I think Noah Syndergaard stands out as a person who's mentally tough. They There was a... Uh, a feature on me in the New York Times. They talked about my work with the Mets. And one of the things that the author mentioned is, you know, Syndergaard's work on his mental game. Um, that's well documented. I mean, he's someone who reads a lot about it, who talks a lot about it. To me, being mentally tough isn't um, – it's really about, as, as a lot of people will tell you, having a great filter. I don't look at people who are mentally tough as far as their results. I look at their mentally tough as that they work at it. Um, and, you know, every elite athlete that you see, usually the people that are really successful work at it. They work at their filter. They learn ways of metabolizing results that are they don't want. How do you get through it if you have a result that you don't want? You know, if you ask the average Major League Baseball player, you know, well, what do you do if you don't have results that you don't want? You know what they say? What? They just go, well, I don't know. I just shake it off. Okay, but then if you ask how, I would say only, you know, half of them will be able to give you the method. And if you could just watch a, a baseball game anytime and see someone give up a home run and you can see what their what their skill is at being able to put it behind them. And in at that level where there's so little that separates players, that's a really big factor. Your ability to just put it behind you and move on to the next pitch is something that's practicable. So, yeah, I think there, you know, there's lots of players that I've worked with that have been able to do that. But I guess the thing that I would point out is it's more about are you working on it or are you not, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all have the same brain and there's certain people who are born with perhaps a, a better ability to 
as people say, have a short memory, right? Just put it behind us. And there's certain people that are more hypervigilant. There's some of us that experience more what we call physiological arousal. Just our heart rate beats more, you know, quickly. We have more variability in those moments. But the question is, you know, how much are you working at it? In the same mm-hmm. way that how much are you going to the gym? Another piece to that equation, which is um, something that Mets general manager Sandy Alderson even wrote about in the foreword of your book, is your why, staying connected to your why and motivation, how that plays into mental resiliency. Yeah, you know, Sandy um, is, you know, certainly a mentor of mine, someone that I really look up to, someone who has... um, has really lived a mentally tough life and who thinks a lot about uh, resilience, certainly is an tr- extremely resilient human. And, you know, Sandy, Sandy is someone who really thinks a lot about commitment and mission-focused work. And so, you know, he was someone that I looked to to be part of that book and be part of the forward because he really gets it. And, you know, coincidentally or not coincidentally, he was one, he was one of the people who really was influential in developing the mental game within baseball. He was one of the people that brought in Harvey Dorfman, who, as I said, is one of the kind of forerunners of this, and and a real support for the influence and the impact of the mental game in, in baseball. Did you flesh out what you wanted to say about motivation? I mean, I think the, the thing about the why is um, with every team, with every player, what most people focus on in high performance is the what and the how. Meaning, hey, you know, we got to approach this thing. This is what we need to do this year, and this is how we're going to do it. That's that's been my experience in working in the NFL and MLB, in firefighting, and in business even. Um, that there's there is a tremendous amount of influence, Patty, on this is our goal. This is what we're going to. And sometimes there's actually not enough work on the how. Like, how are we going to achieve mm-hmm. it? We're going to win this title. We're going to win this boxing match, but not the how. How are we going to differentiate ourselves, put space between ourselves and the the competition? But there's even less work on what we call the why. Um, And the why is a common purpose or a deep reason to accomplish something. And most of the science, the behavioral science says, if I know intrinsically, in other words, internal to me, what my, why I'm doing something, is it because of my commitment to my family? And if so, why? Um, is it because I want to um, demonstrate a particular example for a particular community? Is it because of a connection to a higher power? You know, these are the things that if people can remind themselves of them and make them more present, they're more likely to overcome other obstacles and be able to really implement the goals they have. I mean, Nietzsche, the philosopher, is famous for saying, he who has a why can can endure almost any how. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a big thing about what Sandy was connecting to in the forward, but also just what we work on with athletes is that can be developed, that can be fostered. And no matter whether someone is in a first responding or a firefighting setting or in business or in teaching or just trying to do their job, um, having a, a knowledge of why they're doing it, and developing that and thinking about that can be really profound and help people to stay motivated. We've talked about process versus outcome and your why and how and all these things. You have a really nice perspective of working with individuals and at the organizational level, you you get to see that 30,000 foot view. What do you think some contributing factors are to risk aversion, both individually and at the organizational level? 
Wow. I mean, you know, this is I love this question um, so much because it's so at the heart of what everybody's challenge is. Um, you know, as human beings, we are very built or built to be risk averse. And a lot of this has to do with biology. And, and, and if you're the kind of person that when you hear the word biology, I know you're not. But if you're the <laughs> kind of person when you hear the biology that you just turn off, you don't really have to because it's very simple. And it's simple in this way. Our, our nervous system, the, this nervous system that governs us, it's been evolving for 600,000 years. And it's been evolving to do one thing mainly, keep us out of danger, right? That's how we've survived as a species. We are very primed to when we see something that's, that's high risk, get away from it. In other words, we're looking for predators all the time. And as we've evolved as species and predators, unless you're out there, you know, hunting or, you know, out there in some, some unique job or unless you're an in, in-theater in soldier, you're not going to have that kind of environment. Um, even firefighting is a different version of that. So we're always looking for that danger. We're always looking for that. And um, some of it is even social. It's why when, you know, I'm doing a, a lecture or a talk and I say, any questions? Very few hands go up. You know, we're programmed to move away from danger, including in social situations, right? If we were in a social group like a clan with our tribe, the one thing you couldn't do is piss off the chief because if you piss off the chief, they're going to banish you, right? And then you can't have access to food and, and finding a partner and all these things that help you survive in the world. Basically, you're, you're done. And so we're very built to avoid danger. And so when it comes to professions or it comes to situations where risk is important, where, you know, as, as is said in firefighting, for example, a bias to action is essential, right? It's really difficult sometimes to, um, to get over those things. And it has – people like to talk about it as bravery. It doesn't really have to do with that. It has to do more with biology. It has to know how your body works. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly you, you – you know, if you're choosing a firefighting career, you're a person who has bravery within them. But what people don't realize is that some of this is beyond making a choice. Some of this is people's body kind of locking up on them in certain situations. It's like not stretching, right? Mm-hmm. If you go for a run, you don't stretch. Well, it doesn't matter how great a runner you are. If you're not prepared, and I know you run, so you <laughs> get this, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be ready for the run. Similarly, if you don't know the way your body works and know how your brain and your cardiovascular system work together in situations of risk and high volatility, you're at a disadvantage when it comes to really being in a situation that's life-threatening or that requires from you something that that hasn't yet been required from you in terms of uh, a presentation or a, uh, a um, high-risk situation. So that can all be addressed really and I'm going to say easily at the individual level, but how do organizations then counteract that sort of response? So I've worked a lot with different organizations on things like that. And uh, in my mind, you know, the first thing is is to think about it, right? Because lots of organizations don't. Lots of organizations don't even think about this. They're just, you know, one step up, uh, after the other. They don't really think about what's happening in terms of risk-taking. Um you know, in, in finance, that's begun to happen a little bit because they're learning from sports and military settings and in firefighting. But the first step is to create an environment that's more what we call psychologically safe. So, you know, if you're if you're a leader, what are you doing within your environment to encourage people to take risks? 
um, you know, if you create an environment, so go back to the chief example. Mm -hmm. If you're a chief, right, that is anytime someone gets slightly out of line, they're banished. Good luck encouraging risk, right? Because you can't. How can you do that? If people think as soon as I step out of line here or say something creative, I have a high risk of being banished, it's very unlikely you're going to produce creativity or risk-taking in your team. Um, and so if you're if you're a team leader or you're a boss that's saying that within reason and within respect is encouraging people to come up with ideas, you're much more likely to reinforce that kind of risk-taking. The other thing is by, as we talked about before, having a fundamental value is a real connection between process and outcome. So to use a financial example, it's, it's difficult. A lot of uh, groups in finance will encourage people to take risk. But then if the risk doesn't pay off, they'll get punished. Mm. That should only happen if there's a bad process. So it's understanding and having the agreement between the team and the leader that there is going to be no negative consequence for taking a calculated risk that had a good plan to it, right? If it had a bad plan to it and you take a risk, that makes sense to remediate that. But look, if you throw the best pitch of your life, you know, 99-mile-an-hour fastball, you locate it exactly where it's located, and some guy homers it out the park, you really have to say, good job to the guy who did it. That's, that's his job, right? And, and people get confused about that. Nolan Ryan, the famous baseball pitcher, said a pitcher has two choices, two jobs. This is the job of a pitcher. You choose your pitch and you execute it. People get mistaken. It's not to strike out. Your job as a pitcher is not to strike anybody out. That's their job to strike out. You just throw your pitch. So going back to firefighting or uh, these other fields, really we get confused about what our job is, right? All you, ha you have to show up and you have to be mentally and physically prepared and to do your best to mentally let go of the outcome and be there present 100%. But if it doesn't work out, as long as it didn't have to do with your process, then your job is to move on to the next opportunity. Or just address the process for the next time. Go Mr. Spock. Right? <laughs> you know, go Mr. Spock on the process, right? Go back and logically look at it and say, am I being 100% honest with myself about the process? What am I avoiding here about this? What, what should I be doing that I'm not really doing? Right. And one thing that I've learned to say to myself, and I can say this with full confidence, is I do the best with what I know at the time. Whether yeah. or not I make a mistake, I'll learn from it. I know I'm the type of person who's going to do the most that I possibly can in any situation. And sometimes my resources are limited. And then make peace with that and move on. No question. Yeah, I think that's a really adaptive – in my experience, that's a really adaptive way to do it. I mean your idea of saying, look, I'm, all I can do is be the best patty at this moment and be honest with myself if I'm not. And what can I do to go back and say – Okay, listen, what, what could I have done differently? Um, how could I address my routine? A lot of people, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, Jason has developed within the MPI, the Mental Performance Initiative at the FDNY, which is really interesting, is this three-phase model to firefighting, right? So you have three phases to performance. Preparation, right? preparing for something, execution, and then moving on to reflection. So what people make the mistake of doing is doing the wrong activity in the wrong phase, Right? So if I'm Patty and I'm preparing for something, whether it's a run or you know, an, an interview or some meeting, and I'm preparing during the execution, well, I'm in trouble. What's more common is people reflecting during the execution. 
Right? What does that look like? So that looks like, hey, I'm I'm a baseball player, and I just throw someone. I give up a hit, and then I'm thinking about that past pitch I threw, and I'm thinking, what should I have done differently here? This is not the time to do that. If you're in the middle of a fire, unless it's tactic, there's tactical implications. It's the wrong time. Thinking about what happened with a particular victim uh, before, it's not the time to do it. You're going to really get involved in a thinking process that's going to slow you down. It creates mental drag. Like if I'm having this conversation with you and I feel like, hey, you know, I answered that way in a, a way I didn't want to answer it. But then I start thinking about that. No, now I'm here answering this question. So it's going to create drag for you to do that. And so having different ways, both macro skills, things you're practicing all the time on your mental game, and then micro, in the moment skills, can really help you to, to stay in the phase you're supposed to be in, the, in, in for that particular performance. Makes sense to me. Um, you've been working with the FDNY since 2016, I believe. Before we talk about all your contributions to MPI, and I, I believe you have also worked with the incident management team, can you tell me about your first visit to the Rock? Oh man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm gonna have to do some deep breathing here before I even get into that. Well, first of all, I mean, when you say the Rock, right? Like, I mean, if someone asks you, it sounds so much nicer coming out of my mouth. I, I think. Well, you say it does, but even still, you know, like when you say the Rock, it's funny because like if you just invite someone to somewhere and you're like, hey, do you want to? Why don't you come meet me at the Rock? I already know, like something's gonna go down there. I wasn't wise enough to realize that. In fact, it's funny as you asked me that, I, I just recalled. That when 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 Jason and the and the team and the MPI team invited me out for the first time there a couple a few years ago, I actually thought, oh okay, this is cool. Like dress up in a fire suit and walk around. I imagine myself like taking pictures in a fire truck, and then I get there and they suit me up. It felt like immediately, and then it was one of those things where. You know, if you've ever seen a Spike Lee movie or you just feel like you're on a conveyor belt, like you're just moving along and and things are just blurred out around you. So talk about like anxiety. So all of a sudden I'm um, – they're saying, OK, we're going to do this drill. Again, now I'm thinking like walking through cones. You know, we're going to put oh marshmallows my. in front of a fire. And they explained to me now that the drill is going to be – what they actually call like the baby drill, the baby – like there's the mother of all drills. But this drill was like the the drill for, you know – for sports psychologists, performance psychologists. So all the the probies, right, the new firefighters were going on this this drill. And, you know, as you know, in, in The Rock, there are all these buildings that are built to be lit up and put out in terms mm-hmm. of creating fires that are pretty realistic. So they went through this whole example. They tell me exactly what I was going to need to do. I was going to need to wear this mask. Hey, don't listen, you know, Fader. Uh, you're going to have the urge to rip this mask off. I'm like, no way am I going to have the uh, – there's no way I'm ripping this. I'm going to keep this mask. You know, try to pry it off me after I'm in my car driving home. I'm keeping <laughs> asleep with this thing tonight. So they take me on this on this voyage through this, um, this fire scene. And what was really dramatic to me, Patty, was the thing that I didn't anticipate, even though I was told, was how the smoke would feel. You know, when you walk into a fire, um, and I know there's many firefighters listening to this, so this is not news to them for sure. But, you know, the biggest killer and the biggest impact is the lack of visibility and the smoke. And it was really dramatic to get hit with that. In fact, all of a sudden, I forgot everything that was told to me, where I was supposed to walk. But luckily, as you were talking about before, I have all these skills that I know that I could employ. And so I I went back to my breathing. I went to sort of what I call self-messaging, how I was talking to myself. All I just said is just one foot in front of the other. 
And actually, at some point when it got in the middle and I was a little disoriented, I had to say, hey, you're with the best here, right? Just to bring my level of anxiety down, mm -hmm. my level of what we call physiological arousal. Because we don't really talk about anxiety, actually, with high performers. It's really about physiological arousal. So it was a dramatic introduction to The Rock, but it really taught me a couple things personally. One was, as I said before, life is a sport. Like, not everybody's going to be in that firefighting setting. But many people are going to be in high, you know, really, really dangerous or stressful situations around performance. And having skills, go-to skills that you can go to, whether it's breath work, whether it's self-messaging, um, whether it's having a cue, so many different things. I mean, there's pages of things that you can do, mm -hmm. but having something um, that isn't naturally occurring because most people's plan is naturally occurring, right? As Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You never know when you're going to get punched in the face. And most people don't have a real plan for how to deal with unexpected stressors. And so at that moment when you're at The Rock – were you thinking, who do I thank or who do I blame for being here right now? Like what brought you to that moment? <laughs> no, actually, I feel like, you know, I feel so lucky. Mm -hmm. I feel tremendously lucky. I mean, the amount, of, the amount of gratitude I have for the life experiences I've had, I feel gratitude, tremendous gratitude. Um, I understand and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that I'm contributing something to the MPI project and FDNY, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the what they have given me and what they have given the city that I've always called home. Um, I feel so lucky to be part of that community. And, and I feel so lucky to, to be able to learn um, about how these techniques have, have helped really elite firefighters in very, very dangerous settings in one of the most complex cities of the – or the most complex city of the world. Um, it's it's been a tremendous honor to be part of that program and and to see it grow and to see how it's now contributing to other programs, not just in firefighting, but how other people are now learning from systematically how the FDNY is deploying something like this on a you know a large scale. Right. Who do you attribute your interest in performance psychology to? My mom, like full on. You know, it's funny. Um, yeah, my my. My mom's like a really interesting woman. She just sort of read a lot about uh, psychology and performance and self-improvement. She was someone who – she is someone who still um, reads a lot about that. And my mom has an interesting story in that she – when I don't know. And like you know, she was sort of – when we were school-aged kids, she decided to open up her own business writing resumes, right? And so what that meant was I grew up in Manhattan here and you know I remember going to sleep every night. And every night there would be like – my dad would be there putting me to bed or something like that. And I would hear my mom in the other room talking to some woman or some man about their life. And essentially what she was doing was kind of rewriting their story for them and pointing out all of their strengths, kind of ignoring or re reframing what they did. Oh, because so one guy was, you know, worked at the Department of Sanitation and you know, my uh, after my mom was done with him, he was like, you know, an, an environmental inventor. You know, she'd find all these ways of reinventing people and finding their mm. strengths. And so I, I always listened really carefully to that. And and my mom also was very big into mindfulness, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So she kind of exposed me to that, this idea that you can work on your mentality, that the the mind frame that we have day to day can be enhanced. 
And so I was really exposed to that for from a very early age. And I'm really so grateful to that. And she also taught me about, um, you know, that your mindset is something that you can train. And so I, I was exposed to some of those ideas early on. It, was, it wasn't until later on that I realized it because, you know, when I went to graduate school, I went to graduate school at the University of Washington, which is where I was first exposed to a lot of techniques that I used. And actually, um, one of the, the professors there, Ron Smith, was the psychologist with the Astros. So I learned, wow, you can, you can do this in sports. But it, it, I realized that a lot of the principles that my mom was talking about, this idea of gratitude, this idea of realistic positive psychology, mm-hmm. not, um, not in a kind of Pollyannish or ignoring the negative way, but mm-hmm. really a decision to focus on improvement that all this stuff was was valuable. So I, I definitely – and, you know, I, I still talk to her. She's she's kind of amazed at some of the things that, that I've been involved in. Um, what do you think has amazed her the most? I mean, I think what what is the performance uh, thing that I work on a lot is and – and I know a lot of people work on this – is what to get involved in, you know, what projects to work on. And I think that – you know, what really amazes her are the projects I work on that she just knows are close to my why, right? And I think the firefighting one has been one of those that when I talk to her about it, she just knows that that's something that like I walk away from feeling like, wow, this this is so much bigger than me. Right. What is your why? So one of the things that, that happened for me was – because of this privilege of working with all these athletes and firefighters and and folks who were in these really volatile and exciting situations and helping them come up with these really customized solutions for improving their mentality. I started to realize as time went on that I wasn't doing, practicing what I was preaching. I wasn't really thinking about myself and thinking about the ways in which I was working on my own self-improvement. And so that's really one of the reasons I wrote Life as Sport was I was saying as time went on, wow, I was starting to learn for myself. And then also for clients that I've coached that aren't in in sports or other high-performing settings, even just in business or other areas, that these techniques could help them and can help me. You know, the techniques that I talk about in the book have really helped me not only perform better in situations I'm in, leading a meeting, interviewing someone for a job having, you know, doing a presentation for a large group or a small group. And also, number two, not only, number one, help me perform better or perform at my best, but number two, help me enjoy things at a higher level. And so that's really why I wrote the book and and why I feel compelled and part of my why to help people realize that this mental training is applicable not just in sports or other high-performing professions, but for everyone in almost any situation. For those who are looking to take a healthy step outside of their comfort zone, they can turn to your book, Life is Sport, What Top Athletes Can Teach You About How to Win in Life. You also have a TEDx talk available. Um, I actually follow your Twitter feed, and I love the little line mantras or perhaps every now and then that pop up. They really see me through some difficult situations. Well, that's the idea. I mean, you're really – I think my other why – um, that you're tapping into is is the fact that I really believe that most people are working on physical fitness, but very few people are really working on mental fitness. And and I do have a strong desire to change the conversation about that. 
Most people are out there every day thinking about what they eat to some extent, going to the gym or at least pretending to go to the gym. Um, but really, what are we doing every day to work on our mental fitness, to to think more clearly and to be at our best at whatever we're doing for our work or our home lives? It's a lot for people to digest, I think. Well, listen, I, I you know, maybe we should close it out with like a little song, you know what I mean, to help them digest Sure. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Go that's for a, it. <laughs> I, I knew she was going to turn it back on me. Yeah, so good luck digesting. And, and I hope that some of the things that we talked about help people out there to get all the nutrients that help them to be the best wherever they're performing. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan Fader. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Patty. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Leadership Under Fire, optimizing human performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.